I don't know about y'all, but when I first read this text as I prepared for this lesson, I got a bit of whiplash. We move through what seems like six individual stories here. We start with Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, miraculously receiving sight from Jesus. Then we move into a scene that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and off we go to when Jesus curses a seemingly perfectly fine fig tree. <laughs> then he flips some tables in the temple. We come back and see the fig tree is withered, and then we close it all out with a charge about faith and prayer. I think it often is just so easy for me personally to take individual sections of chapters and focus on their own inherent meaning and story, or to even just compare it with God's grand story of the entire Bible. But then I will miss the writer's intent with a structure surrounding each story. But this is part of why I love teaching women's Bible study. It truly forces me to dive deep into a chunk of scripture, and not only what the scripture means, but why it is written the way that it is. Though Mark 10, 46 through eleven twenty five seems to have six individual stories, it in fact has three sections with three central themes. The first theme is the gospel in action. The second is judgment leading to destruction. And finally, we end with a call to faith and forgiveness. And I feel like I don't really need to tell you that this content is very rich. I couldn't find a single sermon on all of this. There are multiple sermon series that break this text into three sermons. So what we are doing today is more skimming the surface than diving as deep as we can. So deep breaths. I've got my tea. Here we go. <laughs> we begin the scripture with the gospel in action. Jesus miraculously gave Bartimaeus sight. So let me set the scene for this moment. It was close to Passover, which meant that many pilgrims were traveling to Jerusalem for the annual feast. Jesus was just outside the city gate of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem when he came across a man whose blindness had forced him into a life of darkness and poverty. Bartimaeus was a beggar. The crowd around Jesus was likely pretty dense, and those around Jesus, rightfully so, did not think that Bartimaeus had anything to give to Jesus. So when he first called out to Jesus, the people around him told him to be quiet. But Bartimaeus persists and comes to Jesus with the most fundamental prayer. Lord, have mercy. He approaches Jesus contrite, not cocky. He comes humble and not haughty. He knows he has nothing to give to Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, said, Bartimaeus brought nothing but his need. He approaches Jesus's power, not on the basis of his own strength, but in the context of his weakness. And the tender care that Jesus has for this man is so profound. Jesus's heart was likely feeling heavy as he knew what was coming for him in Jerusalem, but he took the time to stop to listen, and to restore Bartimaeus's sight. Jesus shows us just how gracious he is in this moment. 
and how he wants to take everyone that calls upon him from darkness to light. And this moment is what sets the stage for the rest of this passage. In this story, Mark wants to remind us that there is no other way to come to Jesus but by the need we have and his unfailing ability to fully and completely meet that need. Jesus shows us that true greatness only comes through complete humility. And while Bartimaeus may have demonstrated the humility we need, Jesus then leads by example in the next scene in the scripture. This is a very familiar story, (laughs) one that we will be celebrating in a few weeks on Palm Sunday. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he asks his disciples to go get what many commentators believe to have been a donkey. Even though most translations of the scripture do say that he asked for a colt, which is a baby horse, horses just were not as commonplace as donkeys were in Israel at this time. So the scene also may seem kind of strange in the context of the times because most pilgrims finish their journey to Jerusalem on foot. But this action of riding in was fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem just as scripture said he would. He is claiming once again to be the one Messiah that the prophets spoke about. And he's hailed as a king soon after his entrance. And while the world would expect a king to arrive on a grand horse, Jesus intentionally chose a donkey. This choice is something that was probably more appropriate for a child (laughs) than a king. Um, But by making this choice, Jesus is trying to show us that his way is not the way of the world. Tim Keller in his sermon on this scripture said, Jesus deliberately juxtaposes majesty and meekness, power and weakness. Jesus is showing his character in this story. His character is one that doesn't really make sense for all of the opposing qualities he has to be present in one person. He is both the lion and lamb. The lion's presence is one of majesty, power, strength, courage. The lamb, however, represents gentleness and innocence. The lamb is a sacrificial animal, both for the religions of that day, but even to this day, lambs um, sacrifice their wool for us and their bodies for food. How can these two opposite animals represent one person. But Jesus juxtaposes majesty and meekness, power and weakness. And as he arrived in Jerusalem, the people cried out, Hosanna! (laughs) We usually understand this word to be a shout of praise and celebration, but the literal translation is please save us or deliver us. So as Jesus is riding in on the donkey, the crowds are literally calling out for Jesus to give them salvation. Um, So this scene then concludes our central theme of the gospel in action. Jesus came to save. 
He came to save us as both the lion and the lamb. The powerful but humble leader has arrived. So we next moved into the theme of judgment leading to destruction. After Jesus gets off the donkey, he walks into the temple alone. He enters, but it's been a long day of travel. He takes no action and leaves. I wish we knew what Jesus's thoughts were here. In just a few days time, Jesus would tell his disciples that this temple would be destroyed. So was he walking in to reminisce of all the good that once came from this temple? Was he just checking it out to confirm what he knew was happening in there? We just don't know. But we do know that it was late in the day and likely he was tired from all of his travels. So he returns to Bethany with his disciples. The next morning, Jesus is hungry. Uh, side note, I just love that we see the humanity of Jesus here. He approaches a fig tree looking for fruit, even though it isn't in season. When he doesn't find what he's looking for, he then curses the tree. I don't know about you all, but this story always really confused me. I mean, why would a compassionate Savior demand fruit when it wasn't even the season for it? And then why in the world would he then feel the need to then curse the tree? Thankfully, nearly every commentary and sermon I found on this story clearly explains what I did not know about the cycle of fig trees. They have two crops, and both are edible. So what happens is, after the main crop in the fall, the branches of fig trees sprout little buds, which remain dormant until the spring. And in the spring, the buds then swell into that first crop, which is called the Braba crop. I think I'm saying that right. Um, the leaves come right around the same time as that crop. And later in the summer or fall, what we know of as a traditional figs come from the tree. So one would expect to find fruit or at least evidence of that first fruit if a fig tree already had leaves. The tree was deceiving. It looked healthy and promising with all of its leaves, but it was void of any fruit. This tree was likely diseased or even dying. So Jesus's curse was actually less of a curse and more of a pronouncement. This tree was not going to produce figs again. But friends, this is not about the tree. This is a parable against hollow religiosity. And this is a challenge for all of us. Is there evidence of radical growth in our lives from Christ? Or are we just busy with church activities? Don't get me wrong. Church activities are good. We want and we need for you all to be involved. But the goal isn't to be busy. The goal is always to do all things for God's glory, to learn and to let that knowledge water our souls so that we grow and flourish and are productive for him. James R. Edwards in his commentary says, The leafy fig tree with all its promises of fruit is as deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. The placement that Mark uses to sandwich the clearing of the temple between the 
cursing of the tree is very significant. This close parallel of the fig tree with the temple clearing highlights the fact that this isn't about the tree. The fig tree is symbolic of God's judgment of the temple for being a place of fake and empty religiosity. The clearing of the temple was an act of judgment leading to destruction. Ultimately, the temple had to be destroyed in order for it to be rebuilt and restored. And while the temple clearing could easily be a whole 30-minute lesson in and of itself, today we are just skimming that surface for the sake of time. But I don't want you to miss the context of this because I do think it's really important. So the temple had four parts, and the largest portion of it was called the Court of the Gentiles. This is the first area you come to, and this is an area where merchants sold sheep, pigeons, and doves for sacrifice. This was actually a massive industry. It was one that was critical to maintain proper worship, but also it was very profitable for the Sadducees and Sanhedrin. It is estimated that in the busiest year, they could have sold over 240,000 lambs for sacrifice here. That, that isn't even counting all of the pigeons and doves and any other animals that they sold. So the three other parts of the temple were not for non-Jewish people. So Gentiles were excluded from entering any other part of the temple. So the court of Gentiles is the part of the temple where Gentiles were somehow expected to find God, but there wasn't actually any praying or worshiping happening here. It was a busy trading floor. The part that Jesus comes into and then clears is the court of Gentiles. Many people expected that Jesus would purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles and foreigners, but Jesus is not what they expected. Jesus was not clearing the temple of Gentiles. He was clearing it for them. He came in there to interrupt the sacrificial system in place so that he could be the ultimate sacrifice for all. Jesus is described as throwing out the sellers and buyers. The term used here is also the one used elsewhere of casting out demons. Jesus is not necessarily opposing the transaction themselves, as we already know that this was a crucial service for the temple, but he most certainly opposed the location and their subsequent disruption to worship and prayer. Jesus desired for the Gentiles to come to faith, but the temple was not the place. In Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is not the Messiah of only the Jews. The temple and covenant are not reserved exclusively for Israel. Jesus didn't come for just a select few that are good enough, but for all nations. He came for the Gentiles, the foreigners, the refugees, and sojourners. He came for you, no matter the color of your skin or your family history. He came for our friends, and he came for our enemies. Jesus is the Messiah for all.
But the ways of the old system, the ways of the temple in Jerusalem had to be destroyed. Like the fig tree, the temple was withered right down to its roots. The temple has not been cleansed. It has been dissolved. The function of both the temple and the tree have been destroyed. And so how do we know that we aren't just like the fig tree? How are we sure we aren't just like those that Jesus casts out of the temple? How does fruit show in our lives? And what is it that Jesus is expecting from us based on this scripture? As Tim Keller said, he represents both majesty and meekness, both power and weakness. Is the character of Jesus Christ present in you? Are you allowing him the power to reproduce his ways in you? How are you showing growth? Now, I know that the past year has been tough for everyone here on one level or another, but I pray that it also has been a time that you have allowed Jesus to challenge you in ways that perhaps you were too busy for before. For me personally, I have been challenged to the depths of the darkest parts of my heart. Sitting alone in my room or hiding in the bathroom for my children and that dog that follows me everywhere. (laughs) I found myself desperate for quiet in a way that I had never craved before. But I I know my single friends and and family members that are single felt the opposite craving for company, anyone. And meanwhile, we're all watching the world around us seem to crumble. The political divisiveness, the battles with racism and hatred, the growing number of deaths, and the swelling anxiety and tensions around us. We've all probably had at least one moment this year when we felt that we were at the end of our rope. So I understand that asking you about your growth at this moment may feel a bit overwhelming. And I want to be sure that this is clear. This is not about measuring up to a standard in order to be saved. Every other religion on earth offers salvation only by your merits. If you do ABC, you will get XYZ. If you live up to this standard, you will reach that highest level. But if that is true, if you really can earn your way to the religious top, so to speak, those traits of the lion and the lamb, that majesty and meekness, power and weakness, can never be combined in one person. Tim Keller stated, if you're saved by your works, if you're living up to those standards, you will be confident. You will feel good about yourself. But there will always be a tendency towards self-righteousness. Friends, I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a world where your worth is so often measured by what you are accomplishing, which would explain why self-righteousness is such a struggle. And with any self-righteousness, we will then have the tendency to tell people to suck it up when things are hard or to look down upon others that are struggling with something we don't struggle with. I think they are now calling this toxic positivity. It took a pandemic, but people are starting to see how awful it is to just tell people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. 
the whole movement of telling people that you can only have good vibes is not only denying the grace to grieve and struggle, but is also denying that we have a need for a savior. And this kind of self-righteousness, you're bold, but you aren't gentle. You are just, but you aren't merciful. Merciful. <laughs> you are asserting your power, but you are not admitting any weakness. And certainly not showing any vulnerability. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've earned your way to God, it would be nearly impossible to be gracious to others that don't appear to have it all together. And at such a time as this, no one has it all together. We're all flawed. We are riding through the waves of a pandemic. We are in uncharted waters. But his anchor holds us fast as long as we have faith in him. James R. Edwards in his commentary said, Faith is a choice to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary and to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. Friends, I don't know if you've heard this yet today, but you are radically loved in spite of your flaws. You are loved even if you are anxious about the future. You are loved even if you are judging your neighbor. You are loved if you are listening to this replay while hiding from your kids in your pantry with all the good snacks. <laughs> you are loved if you are inwardly or outwardly aching for life to be normal. You are loved so much that Jesus does not want to leave you where you are. Jesus deeply desires to radically change you by his love so that your character reflects both the lion and the lamb of his character. You are loved and your relationship with God is not dependent upon your record of sacrifices, but on Jesus's ultimate sacrifice. So, the judgment has been made. The destruction has begun. And now we start to see that faith in Jesus and not legalistic religion is our path forward. We close this passage with a charge to have faith and forgive. Mark's choice to follow the fig tree temple sandwich with a call to faith helps us see so clearly that Jesus and not the temple is where we find our faith. We often hear the description of faith that can move mountains. And while we all can probably name a mountain we want to move right now, Jesus's primary point here is not about identifying the mountain, but more so about the power of faith and prayer. In Mark Strauss's commentary on this passage, he says, moving a mountain is proverbial for something humanly impossible, but possible with God. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. This isn't just talking about the power of positive thinking. This is the power of God. What seems impossible is made possible. Luke 1.37 says, For nothing will be impossible with God. 
So this proverbial mountain that we want thrown into the sea, that huge thing that seems impossible to happen. Jesus tells us here that not only do we need to have faith that he will move and provide for us, but we need to first forgive if we are holding anything against another. I personally find this a little cyclical um, because oftentimes if the grievance is so big or if it runs so deep, it feels impossible to forgive. Forgiveness can easily be a mountain in and of itself, one that we can only do through prayer and God's ability to radically change our hearts. Mark Strauss in his commentary says, our failure to forgive others is not only detrimental to our relationship with them, but also with God. So Jesus commands his followers to offer forgiveness, just as they have been forgiven. Forgiveness, then, is the cornerstone of our faith that most perfectly showcases God's nature. He is the ultimate forgiver. He is both just and gracious. He has both righteous anger and merciful forgiveness. Micah 7, 18-19 says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our inequities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. So we forgive so that we will be forgiven, and we have faith that can move mountains. And then we pray. Mark eleven twenty four says, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So I need to close this with a funny story. <laughs> um, when I was a kid and first read the scripture, I just knew that I could pray at night for an Oreo to show up next to my bed the next morning. I definitely believed God would do that for me because he loves me and I really, really loved Oreos. Of course, I woke up to an empty bedside table the next morning. There were no Oreos, and I was so disappointed. And we can all laugh about this now because we can very clearly see that my motive was a bit off there. And besides, Oreos aren't exactly the best thing to give your body first thing in the morning. I clearly saw prayer as a means to an end. I'll have faith in you, Lord, and then you will give me what I want. And I wish I could say I learned my lesson and never did that again. (laughs) But that would not be the truth. John Bloom said in a blog post for Desiring God, this is what we must keep in mind. Prayer is a relational interaction, not merely a service transaction. Faith is not divine currency that we pay God in order to receive whatever we ask in prayer. Faith is a relational response of trust in what God promises us. So this tiny little section at the end of this passage is something I feel like we could probably spend weeks unpacking, but again, we're just skimming that surface to see how this entire passage in Mark is teaching us about Jesus's character. Through these three themes of the gospel in action, judgment leading to destruction, And then the call to faith and forgiveness. We see Jesus tenderly but boldly 
calling us out of darkness and into light, just like he did for Bartimaeus. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He embodies the perfect dichotomy of a confident but humble leader. He showed us his gentleness with Bartimaeus and his humility by riding in on a donkey. But he also showed us his judgment and righteous anger over both the fig tree and the temple. When I was first given this passage, I must confess that I was really unsure how I would tie all of this together. But it's evident to me now, and hopefully to you too, that this segment of scripture is teaching us about Jesus's dichotomous character, the power and weakness, majesty and meekness, and that faith in Jesus will reproduce that radical character, that radical character growth in us. Let's pray. Lord, this year has been a tough one, but Jesus, we know that you are with us. Help us to seek you in the hard things and pray, praise you in the good. Lord, continue to radically change us to the core. May our anxious hearts be obviously set at peace. May we seek both justice and mercy. And Lord, may we recognize where we need to forgive. In your name, amen.